Hello, and welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. My guest today is the author of more than 20 novels across numerous genres, including mystery, suspense, thrillers, and crime. Known for his fast-paced storytelling and action-oriented plots, Jeff Buick delivers well-crafted characters in psychological thrillers geared for readers who love an adventure. Jeff lives in Calgary, Canada, which he says is wonderful in the summer, but not so much in the wintertime. So, hey, Jeff, thanks for being on the show today. Hey, Stephen, thanks for having me. It's good to speak with you again. It's been a number of years since our paths have crossed. I think it was probably at Thriller Fest in New York City. But, uh, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a while. It has. I, a few years, and I see that you've been on a bit of a rocket, which is great. So um, I remember back uh, a, while, a while ago you asked me to blurb one of your books, and I sent something back, and I went up to my sister's house, and your book was sitting on her coffee table, and I'm like, oh, Stephen James, right? Picked it up and flipped it over, and there was my blurb on the back cover. Excellent. Yeah, I remember giving you, I can't remember which book it was, but that's fun that she was reading it. That's cool. It was, yeah, it so, was The Knight yeah. or The Queen's okay. Book. It was one of those yeah. things, yeah. One of the chess ones, yeah. yeah. Well, that's, that's fantastic. Now, you know, over the years, the publishing world has changed qu- quite a bit. Uh, I know, as you're certainly aware. Um, now, you've written for New York publishers in the past, but you've recently started to publish independently. Um, and that is a huge transition that I know a lot of our listeners are probably curious about um, that process. Tell me, tell me a little bit about um, how you came to this decision and sort of this new venue or avenue that you're taking. Well, it's, it's not something to be taken lightly. I think that there is and always will be a place for New York, Toronto, and London as far as the agents and the publishers go. Traditional publishing is really important, and it's a very, very good way to vet work and make sure that really good work is getting onto the shelves. Print books are here to stay. Uh, I think that e-books have probably, you know, kind of found their market about, I think it's about 23 or 25% now. Mm. So still 75% of people prefer to read a, a print book. So traditional publishing is not going away. And I looked at it and I, 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 I thought, I've got 20 books that I can pump out. I have the rights back to the ones that I published through Dorchester back in the day. And oh, okay, sure. 21 books, yeah. So, you know, with 21 books, and I, I look at New York and I say, okay, well, they're going to want a book a year. If I get a really aggressive publisher, they may want two. So I, I look at that and say, okay, that's, that's 20 years worth of work, and I, that's not if I write anything else. So yeah. New York kind of doesn't work as far as the timing goes. So I thought, what if I did this, tried this myself? Yeah, and and so you have ventured into the realm, and I know that it (laughs) – I've talked to some people, and I know that it's not easy. You have to start understanding search algorithms and, you know – I don't even know all all of the SEOs and and stuff like that. Have you found that there's been information that you've been able to, you know, find or has it been just a trial and error kind of process for you? 
No, no, Stephen, not trial and error, not at all. As a matter of fact, if anybody out there is thinking about going indie and they decide that they're just going to kind of trial and error things, you're probably going, it's going to be like dropping a pebble into a manhole. It's just going to have, mm. your books aren't going to have any effect at all. What yeah. you need to do is you need to, you need to get um, onto Readsy and all of, all, there's all kinds of things. There's Nick Stevenson, there's um, uh, Mark Dawson. There's all kinds of guys out there and women who uh, are authors and they're, they've taken the indie route and they're willing to share that with you. And I think it's really important that you jump in and spend, yeah, I would say, I would say three to six months, maybe even to a year to understand how everything works. That's what I did. I, I, I said, I'm going to take probably, well, I took about six months and yep. said, I'm going to do nothing but learn. And, wow. you know, you're right. There's SEO, um, there's metadata, there's keywords, there's the, you have to get some sort of an idea how the uh, Amazon and the other algorithms work. And without that, you're, you're just, you're going to be dead in the water when you launch. Wow. Well, I know you know writing for traditional publishers. It's it's still difficult. You still have to do some marketing on your own. Um, they still want you to have you know as much of a web presence and social media and stuff. It's just the whole world. There are so many voices vying for people's attention, and you know literally so many stories being told out there through. Um, both in film and print and everything, that it's just becoming harder and harder to get noticed. And I heard somebody say once, "Yeah, it's a it's a war for people's eyeballs." <laughs> I like, kind of like that. It's, it's yeah, like it it's is. a I battle mean, for their eyes. Yeah, I mean, between you know, print, audio, and and you know, uh, streaming services like Netflix, yeah. there is so much content out there. Um, yeah, and if you're going to get into it, you need to, whether you're traditional or whether you're an indie, you need to build your website. You need to prep up your backlist. You need to look at having a series because readers really like series. I mean, look at Lee Child and the Jack Reacher uh, yeah. series. You know, it's, it's, uh, everybody just looks forward to a Reacher book so much. Um, you need to decide which ones you're going to push into a series. Make sure that your characters are good. Uh, and then I found that I just had to assemble a team in order for me to do this as well. Oh, wow. Uh, I've, got, yeah. uh, I've got a, an assistant, uh, and I, I, I actually kind of hesitate to call Christina an assistant. She is pretty much everything uh, to me <laughs> as far as you know the business goes. She, she does everything behind the scenes. She's amazing. Couldn't do it without her. And then I've got a great cover artist in Lance Buckley. Uh, you know, I've, I've been really, really fortunate. And probably my, my best acquisition was <laughs> my wife, Celia. She, she is in architecture. She's got a, a master's in architecture. But she is an excellent editor, better than any Yay. editor I've ever had. So That's <laughs> fantastic, <you> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, cool. No, that's great. I know that, um, you know, there's definitely become a market for people who are, you know, designers, editors, and, and so on, especially with people who are freelancing or self-publishing or indie publishing or you know, whatever you want to call it. And so, so it's, it's definitely a different, um, you know, it's different time than when both of us got started back in the day. Um, oh, it definitely is. Uh, <laughs> one, one thing about, the, about the, the indie route as well, too, Stephen, is that, yeah. you know, you've, you've lost the gatekeeper. There's the agent and the publisher aren't between you and the and the and the reader, and you are the gatekeeper. Uh, as the author, 
and you've got to decide what quality of book you want to put out there. Oh my goodness, and that's a good point, yeah. Yeah, it becomes kind of the, you know, everybody has their different way of doing business. So to me, this is a business. I mean, you know, I love, I love writing stuff. I, I love to write. That's why I do it. But you, you have to take and put your business hat on and say, uh, if I don't sell and market and sell these things, then, you know, nobody's reading my, my work. Why, why would I do this? Uh, so the onus on quality comes back to the author. So I decided very early in, in this to have an extremely high level of quality on my books. And yeah. uh, even the short story that I've got coming out just this week to the people on my mailing list, uh, I think we worked on it for three weeks. It's 14 pages long. And Celia, you know, she took it apart, you know, three or four times. And uh, <laughs> uh, we, we, we really had some, some uh, constructive words on it. <laughs> you know, like, I was like, oh. Sweetie, you can't take that out. That's really good. And she's like, no, Jeff, it's not, right? So oh, and then she's like, here's how it has to end. And I'm like, really? And she's like, really? And so we ended it that way. And it's like I, when I read it, I, I saw the formatted version after Christina got it. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, okay, that is really good. So Yeah, you know, that's, no, that's cool, yeah. Yeah, so it's a, it's a, it's a team effort. You know, the thing you mentioned about quality is let's, you know, dwell on that for just a second. And, and that is I've interviewed a lot of different people on, you know, this show, and um, there are different perspectives on it, like you mentioned, but I believe that we as, you know, storytellers, as writers, we really need to shoot for the highest quality possible. Um, mm-hmm. You know, people have different perspectives on that, but um, kind of one of the um, goals of this whole show is to really help people tell better stories and to tell them as well as they possibly can. I think in the self-publishing world, for for whatever reason, they got started with this idea of write fast um, Mm -hmm. and sell, you know, write, write your next book within the next six weeks or two months or something like that. And so people are pumping out these books, but I just don't see... In, in some of those series, the quality that could be there if they would spend more time like you do, you know, editing and really shaping and crafting the stories. Yeah, I, I really agree, Stephen. Um, I think that, you know, you have, to, you have to be aware of how you can sell your work. And one of those things is I don't think you have to necessarily write really fast, but you should definitely write to market. There's a lot of talk about that. And when I say write to market, it's what is selling and um, if, if something is selling really well, maybe write that because people are going to buy it. Uh, you know, uh, sexy vampires have come and gone with the Twilight series, so nobody's yeah. really writing that anymore. So it could be something like that. But uh, when, I, when I think about writing to market, and I do write to market, I look at my demographic and I say, well, who buys my books? Hmm. And it's men and women probably between about 30, 35 to about Seventy, uh, and I, I can I could drill down into that demographic a lot more for you onto, you know, what kind of device they read on and uh, oh, wow. what their income level is and their level of education. But I, I won't bother. But that, <laughs> that's the bell curve. So the, the bell curve is probably around fifty year old man or woman sitting down, uh, either with a print book or a tablet. And, and they're reading my book. So the One is Evil is a Bobby Greco book that I just put out not too long ago here. And in it, there's a scene where Bobby uh, goes, he's a uh, cop who got thrown off the Orlando homicide uh, 
uh, squad. And he goes into a morgue, and of course he knows the, uh, the receptionist, and he's in there to see the coroner and that. So, But he stops at the desk, and he talks to the receptionist, and he knows her by first name, and that her son is uh, possibly going to get drafted by an NHL team. And they talk, and so when I say running to market, that to me is really important because my reader could be one of those people sitting at that desk, at a desk somewhere um, in a reception uh, uh, capacity, or, you know, these are real people. And so you, you, you make sure that the, the characters connect with all of these other people in a yeah. way the reader would want to be connected with. And that, that gains you empathy, I think, uh, from the reader's perspective to the writer. I like that. You know, one of the things that we, um, we often try to do, of course, is create identification with the characters in the stories and empathy. But I like the way that you put that, you know, between the characters within the story, that there's empathy and understanding and that we can relate to that, you know, as readers from the exterior, uh, you know, reading in. So, yeah, that's nice. Mm-hmm. That's good. Now, I know one of the things, Jeff, that you really, really try to do in your stories is authenticity. Um, and you've traveled, oh, yeah. you know, throughout the world, Venezuela, Costa Rica, Africa, Eastern Europe, just to find the authenticity um, and locations for your stories. Tell us a little bit about that. That's, that I really respect that, that uh, you take it that seriously. Well, I... When I'm reading uh, uh, other books, I can pretty much tell if the author has been there or if they're on Google Maps. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's not that difficult, really. So when you get there, uh, you, you get a feel for, well, let's take Venezuela, for example. Well, I was down in Venezuela back when Hugo Chavez's government was, was kind of teetering, and it looked like the government might actually fall. And I was down there on a scuba diving expedition. I was down for, I think, 12 days or something, and we were Mm, going over to Isla de Margarita, which is just off the coast of, you know, by Caracas down there. So we landed in Caracas, and we, the the taxi driver taking us from the airport uh, told us to lay down in the back seat because he, (laughs) we're like, okay, you know, well, why? It's like, well, they're shooting it. If they think you're kind of, you know, foreigners, they're, they're, they're taking pot shots at you right now. And I'm like, oh, okay, this isn't good. So, yeah, no we, kidding. so we ended up getting over to uh, Island of Margarita, okay, just bare, barely. It was That's a whole story by itself. We get over there, and we're, we're over there for a couple of weeks. And uh, it wasn't quite as bad as the mainland. And Chavez's government did end up staying in power. And it, had, it was still pretty volatile. There was a lot of violence on the street and everything when we got back. Uh, but when we, we got back to the Caracas airport and we went up to, I, I can't remember if it was Delta or United, went up to the counter and it was gone. <laughs> the airline oh. shut down. So, oh, my goodness. We, we had tickets, but we had no airline to get us out of, out of Caracas. And, and we were now looking, okay, what do we stay overnight? Like we could quite easily get killed here. Uh, so we uh, went over to whichever the other one was, uh, United or Delta. And one of them was still running and bought like, very expensive tickets back to Miami. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, you, you can't make that stuff up, right? <laughs> it just, and when you get down there and, and uh, you're, you're surrounded by this and there's all the nuances of exactly where you are and what's going on and the culture and the people and the food and the smells and everything else, um, that there's no substitute for actually being there. 
Now, I agree, and uh, I do the best that I can to visit the locations and and very often try to get those little tiny nuggets of, um, I, I guess, I don't know, little nuggets of info that people who live there might know about, but you're not going to get off the Internet. Um, I remember I was doing a, a book in New York City, and I was talking with someone there who was uh, a runner, and so he would run in the mornings, and he said, you know, as you run in the mornings, there's gar- bags of garbage out from the night before that haven't been picked mm-hmm. up yet. And if you go early enough, you'll see these gar- garbage bags and so on. And he said, sometimes you'll see the garbage bags move. And I was like, what? What do you mean? He's like, yeah, because of the rats that get into the, the garbage bags. And just this idea of running and seeing these garbage bags quivering and, you know, squirming and moving, I thought, that's too good. I have to use that in my book. So I use that in the book, and, and people who live in New York City say, oh, man, you really know New York City really well. <laughs> and, uh, and other people kind of get a sense of, like, oh, okay, that's very legitimate, and that's authentic and genuine, and, and so on. And so I think it's just one of those little, you know, details that brings that – home to people. You, you can search on the internet. You're not going to find that on Google Maps. No, you're, you're certainly not. And, you know, when you're in some of these kind of, I, I, you know, like they're kind of third world countries. They're countries that don't, that are not as prosperous as Canada or the United States or, yeah. or Europe. You get, uh, and, and you're back in, in the back roads, not just in the main cities. Um, you'll see them sweeping the dirt floors in their houses like they're actually sweeping the dirt floor. And it gives you a really good feeling for exactly how they how they live, what you know what what's normal to them. Because yeah. I think as a as a writer, you need to get outside your little Stephen James box or your Jeff Buick box, and you need to be able to see the world from a different POV. Right. And uh, that's really important because uh, when you're writing, uh, if you're writing from inside. Uh, your point of view and your little very, very privileged box that we live in up here in, in North America, uh, you know, that's not going to come up across right if you're writing about a poor person from Africa or, or Central America, somebody who's maybe threatened by, you know, in you know, some of these countries like Guatemala or Honduras where they're threatened by gangs, things like that. Yeah. Yeah, I- um, a number of years ago, it was probably about a decade ago, I went to India to do some teaching, and my daughter, who was 13 at the time, said, well, could I come along? And I was mm-hmm. like, why not? Sure. So so she came to India with me, and I still remember we visited this one slum, and while we were there, I didn't know this, but there was another group of people nearby who heard we were there and thought we were coming to take advantage of the people who lived there like for a movie or something like that. This was back in the day when Slumdog Millionaire had come out. And there was controversy because they felt like the filmmakers took advantage of the people who were poor and made this movie and made, you know, $100 million or whatever it was. And and So anyway, this gang of people apparently was on its way to attack us at this slum, and our translator was like, I think we should probably go. I was like, why? No, we're having a good time here. He's like, no, we should probably go. And only later did he say, yeah, there was, there was these people. I was like, man. But again, being on the ground, it's, um, it, it's always good stories, you know? Yeah, well, apparently you had a pretty good guide. Yeah, no kidding. I was, I was thankful for him. Um, yeah. So 
So, Jeff, when you're working on your stories, what tends to come first for you, the character or the conflict? Do you tend to work with, you know, an idea for a certain character, or is it something else that really, you know, gets the story off the ground for you? It completely depends. I remember I was um, sitting at uh, Gordon Buchanan's house uh, up in Edmonton. It's just a bit north of Calgary here. And Gordon Buchanan's a wealthy guy and owned part of the Oilers hockey team. And, oh, yeah. Uh, but he's a really, really cool guy. Like He's a really good guy. And so I'm sitting there at his house, and I'm like, Gordon, I, I said, you're a really interesting character. Can I use you in one of my books? And he's like, yeah, sure, go ahead. I said, can I? put your real name and he says I don't care go ahead so Gordon Buchanan became the main character in a, uh, a, a book that's called Lethal Dose that was out through Dorchester yeah. and uh, now I had a main character now I had to figure out what to do with him so the character came first in that particular one uh, yeah. same thing happened in Delicate Chaos uh, this, there's a Leona character in there and I had very close ties with the Stollery Children's Hospital up in Edmonton at the time and I donated an opportunity to be a character in one of my books and to uh, the silent uh, auction at a black tie affair. And oh, wow. the winning bid was $13,500 that got paid wow. to the hospital. That's and fantastic, yeah. Leo- yeah, yeah, and this this Leona character, I went over and I interviewed her and uh, uh, got to know her, and she became, it's not her, not the right last name, I will say that, but Leona yeah, yeah. is her first name, but uh, she became the Leona character in Delicate Chaos. So both of those books were, um, uh, because I had a character, now I had to do something with it. Now, with Bloodline, when I was in Venezuela and almost getting killed and stuck in the <laughs> Uh, I was, I was, we're scuba diving on Isla de Margarita, and uh, we're going out to this place way, it's way off the shore, like it's way out there. We're in this little tiny boat, couldn't have been more than about 16 or 18 feet out in the ocean, like it's, it's absolutely crazy. And the, it was so rough that my dive master's bag flipped over, and on the bottom it said Escobar. And so I'm like, hey, Eugenio, you, you're related to Pablo. And he's, he's laughs it off and started telling me about the Colombian uh, and Venezuelan and how the Escobar clan split. And, you know, like, and, but by the time I got back to my hotel that night, I had the storyline. What hmm. if Pablo never died? What if he's still alive? So that one became the storyline was really the whole thing then. It's like, what do I do with this if Pablo's still alive, right? <laughs> so, and then yeah. one more that I had was uh, one that would be coming out in about a year or so called The Reluctant Truth. And I was kind of between books, and I said to Celia, well, I don't know what to write. You know, she says, well, Jeff, you write what you know. And I'm like, oh, okay, sweetie, well, <laughs> maybe a little thick, but why don't you tell me what I know? So she says, well, you know, your dad just went through kind of the end of life process, you know, because he got older and he passed away. She said, why don't you write about that? So I turned, you know, an old, old guy in his 90s, uh, plus his son, into a thriller uh, uh, where the finally the older guy starts talking about what he did during World War II. And the ah. son realizes that his dad is this guy. He he never he didn't know his dad. He did not yeah. know this man. So sort of like the uh, sometimes the people closest to you are the most wonderful strangers, you know, like mm. that sort of thing. 
So that, again, came from, uh, that's where it came from. Yeah, all, all yeah. kinds of different ways, Stephen. Yeah, and that's, that's a powerful, uh, you know, story, too, because people can identify with the loss of a loved one. And so, you know, we mentioned earlier this empathy between, you know, the reader and characters, and I could see how that's a great, you know, hook to get people interested in it. And then it's something we can all, we can all you know, identify with. Right. Well, I, uh, and I wanted to write something. I mean, my dad was in the war. He was a navigator, and obviously he survived the war. Uh, he uh, didn't start telling me his stories until, you know, he was, you know, only a couple of years from, from when he died. So mm-hmm. he really held all that stuff in. And this is, I, I think, it's a bit of a shout-out to the military, to, to people who go to war. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't want to set the entire book in World War II because that just kind of beats you down and, and just it's it's omnipresent all the time the horrors of the war. So I wanted yeah. to set part of it in the war and part of it in current day. And uh, this worked really well to do that, where you've got this this father and son kind of getting to know each other, and you've got his war stories as, he, as the father fights his way across Europe, and the son starts to realize that what's happening today, like there's some real conflict going on in present day, and he, he realizes that it's all tied back to something that happened when his dad was over in Europe during the war. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, so that's how you tie it together and make a thriller out of it. You know, you're known for your action in, in your stories. They're, they're thrillers, and there's always, you know, a sense of mystery and suspense and stuff. But tell me a little bit about what are some of the secrets to writing action sequences. I find that for myself, writing fight scenes is difficult for me. There are certain different scenes that I, I, I don't have as much trouble with, but when I sit down to write a a fight scene or a chase scene, I'm always like, how do I do this? What what have you found that's helpful for you over the years? Well, I would say that probably the 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 best well I have to go to when I'm writing anything with action is in my mind it's playing out like it's on the screen. Hmm. And uh it's like a movie. So if it's, uh, say it's on a, uh, a back road in France and you've got one car chasing another car, I literally just close my eyes. I just get a feel for all the stone buildings that are at the side of the road, the little walls, the little stone walls with all the rough stones sticking out, uh, maybe cobblestone streets. Um, you've got a lot of beautiful big trees in, in France that are kind of on the horizon. There's your setting. The sun is down. It's just down enough that it's there's this kind of crepuscular light, you know, this this light at uh, the end of day, and then you've got these two cars just screaming through the the, the countryside. You've got a few people out with their little um, uh, on their bicycles and and their uh, long French uh, loaves of bread, and they're jumping <laughs> yeah. off the road to the side as these two cars go by and one shooting at the other and uh, guys leaning out the window and and going around a corner almost gets his head taken off by the by the uh, house because it's so close to the road so having been to france uh and and uh knowing what it's like to be on those little back roads that's where i'm going to put that chasing because i know that because i've been there 
And then I start to see it like it's playing out, like Tom Cruise is in one car and the bad guys <laughs> in the car ahead, right? And Tom's going to get them, okay? So to me, it's, it's about being able to kind of visualize it and see it. And once I can yeah. do that, my, yeah, I can write it. Yeah, that's great. I like how, you know, you kind of, you almost it's like you, you search the area and you take it all in and, you know, from the the lighting to the houses to the location or how close they are to the road, all of those things affect, you know, the way that you craft that scene. And I can, even as you're just describing it, I can picture it. And uh, so I think... Um, I think that's that's great, you know, as far as helping to helping readers to picture stuff. Sometimes I get lost in the minutia of of scenes. So let's say a fight scene or something. And someone swings a fist, and I'll say, you know, his left fist or something. And readers are thinking, wait, he can never swing it from there because he's you know a meter and a half away from the guy or something like that. So helping keeping people oriented is is that's a trick. It's not easy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, my Celia was. If, if, if I swung a left fist at somebody, she would she would just stroke out left. She's like unnecessary, Jeff. <laughs> does, does, they the reader does not care which hand yeah. your guy just got hit with or hit or hit the other guy with. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And uh, there was this one scene from a novel that I sometimes use in my seminars, and the. Uh, the writer, you know, he does that left fist and the right foot, and this, and so people are reading it, and they're you, they're just like staring up, like trying to picture, you know, how he could get his right foot up around the other person, you know, their body or whatever, and and so they get caught up, and and you can't necessarily picture it. It's almost like descriptions of. You can do a description of someone's face really quickly, but if you spend a paragraph on it, it almost doesn't help you anymore <laughs> to picture their face. You could say something, you know, simple and, and vibrant about their face, and then the more that you describe their eyebrows and their jaw and everything, it's almost like we lose sight of it. Yeah, I, I remember one, I, I'm not sure who it was, uh, one writer described a, a big, muscly guy as a squat knot. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm like, okay, that's pretty good. I get it. Yeah, yeah no. So that, less is less is more. I think so. Very often it can be. So, mm-hmm. now your was your first book Bloodline. My first, well, it was the eighth book that I wrote. But it oh, was my the first eighth book one that you that wrote was published. Yeah. So I had oh wow. Eight books, yeah, eight books finished, and uh, uh, yeah, and uh, <laughs> I, uh, I had a. Um, server of a restaurant where I go to all the time and uh, I went in and she says, hey, I, I got a guy's business card for you. And I said, what? And she says, yeah, I asked him what he does because he comes in every now and then he said, well, I'm a book publisher. Yeah. So, I, so I, I, I said, well, I know a writer. And she, she said, you know, he wasn't all that anxious to give me his card. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I, I did get it. So anyway, I called, uh, I called Paul, that's his name, and yeah. uh, I said, hey, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm Jeff Buick, and yeah, I've, I've got a book. And he's like, mm, I'm sure you do. I said, <laughs> uh, do you want me to send it? I can send it down to you. And there's this pause, Stephen, and it's like yeah. he's thinking, Root Canal or Jeff's book? <laughs> which do I, whoa, which do I want, which way do I want to go? <laughs> so he said, all right, send it to me. So that was on Wednesday. I sent it Thursday. He got it Friday. I got a call 
uh, fr- Saturday morning, and he said, well, hey, thank you, thank you, thank you. He hmm. said, you ruined my night last night because I started reading your book at like seven, 8 o'clock at night and could not put it down. Hey, I there you go. It. Can I take it to New York with me to meet with the New York publisher next week? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, is that like a trick question? Of course you can. So he <laughs> takes it down. Let me think about that, right. Yeah. So on Wednesday the next week, I get a call, and I look over, and it's a 212 area code. So I know that's New York. So I pick yeah. it up, and it's like Dawn Doria from Dorchester. And Dawn's like, yeah, I love your book. We want to buy it. And that was the start of, a, you know, I think a five-year relationship or something with Dorchester, mm, wow. where they bought a whole bunch of my books and put them up, pumped them out there. They were great to work with. But there, there it was. You know, I went eight. I had eight books written. Um, I had I have enough rejections from from that period in time to pretty much wallpaper two rooms, wow. and uh, then within one week I go from nothing to a contract in the mail, and they kept buying my books. So it's it's a crazy business, but that's kind of how Bloodline came to be. Yeah, that is crazy. And so when you were writing these books and getting these rejection letters, and I think that's good to you know to talk about that for a second. What was going through your mind? Were you th- how did you Stay persistent to continue to work and write. What was it that gave you the confidence that things were going to work out one day? I don't know if it was what gave me the confidence, Stephen, so much yeah. as I love writing. And mm, there you, go. you know, you can, you know, if somebody loves something enough, you just you kind of keep doing it, and you do it because you love it. When I got rejections back from the agents, they weren't, you know, like you know, thanks for the paper, but you ruined it by writing on it. They, they weren't that bad. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> they were. They were like um, I couldn't quite connect with the characters, uh, you know, whatever it was, and uh, and some of them they even said you can follow up. I did follow up with them and talk to them. So I started to craft uh, my writing. I started to make it better, and yeah. uh, so it was a learning experience for me. So writing all of those first books was was a learning experience, and uh, I think if I if I didn't really enjoy writing, I probably would have given up. But, but I love it, and this is what I want to do. So I'm, I'm just not going to give up. I'm like a dog with a bone. Yeah, that's great. You know, I've talked to a lot of different authors over the years, and your story is not that unusual. People who are writers, storytellers, whatever they write, and it is not often that their first book gets picked up out there by a publisher, but often they have to struggle through writing numerous manuscripts and learning and growing, and finally, you know, something clicks for whatever reason. And um, and very often it is a personal connection, like, you know, you had this guy's business card and you send it to him or, you know, someone meets up with an editor or an agent at a conference and uh, suddenly a relationship is born. So so I think, yeah, it's encouraging to, to hear on the one hand to, to say, you got to stick with it, stick with it and develop those relationships and who knows where it'll lead. Yeah, I think if you want it bad enough, that's what you need to do. You you need yeah. to stick with it. No. You know, I think at the heart of good storytelling is tension. Sometimes the tension is between characters. Sometimes it's within the character. Sometimes it's between the character and, you know, external forces and so on. But, but I always think that great stories have this unmet desire, this tension that's driving them forward. Um, now, when you're writing your stories, do you ever think in terms of struggles and tension, conflict, and so on like that? Or wh- how do you actually develop the, the storylines that uh, these interesting characters end up taking? 
Well, when you say tension, you also mentioned the word conflict in the same sentence. And I think yeah. that um, once you bring conflict into a story, and you should, as a writer, you should always have conflict of some sort in there. Um, and even rom-coms have a little bit of conflict, you know, boy gets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right, so you know there's some conflict, but when you get into thrillers, mystery, crime, suspense, there's definitely got, has to be conflict in there, and the conflict yeah. itself is what's going to ramp up the tension. So if the reader cares about the characters, then they're going to feel that tension. If they don't care about the characters, you have not done your job as a writer. You have not um, brought the conflict out. You haven't brought out the um, idiosyncrasies inside the characters enough. There's not any empathy with the reader to the characters, and they're not going to feel that tension build. Mm. So conflict in the story, well done, well written, uh, well-rounded 3D characters creates that tension. And it can be palpable sometimes. You can be a reader or a, a listener in the case of an audiobook, and you can literally, you know, your palms can start sweating. I mean, you know, you're like, oh, my gosh, right? Uh, so when, when I'm sitting down to, you know, create something that has conflict, um, there's, there's one thing that I know for certain, and, and that's the end of the book. Mm, so when, okay. I, when I sit down to start a book, the, the very next thing that I do is where does it end? Because there's nothing worse than watching a movie or reading a book, and the, you're, at the end of it, you're like, okay, well, I don't think that the writer really knew where they were going with this, and mm. it just kind of all fell apart at the end. That is awful, and it's not fair to the reader. Mm. So the, the first thing that I, that I get when I start is the, the story arc and where it ends. Then I start to take some pivotal points along this arc, and I say, okay, I need to have a clue here. I need to have a hold back here, something the, the police will hold back or something that I'm going to hold back as a writer, you know, that the, the reader doesn't know at this point but can be released later. Uh, I'm going to have all of these different little um, tools in my toolbox that I'm going to put yeah. uh, on this story arc. And then I'm going to kind of start writing it. So I don't get super detailed, but I, I really, I know where it's going. It's like a roadmap uh, across the, you know, uh, the Hungarian countryside. And you're going to stop at, you know, a few places, you know, you're going to Budapest and, you know, you're, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, but as you're driving along, you see a little, nice little town on a hillside about four kilometers off the road. And you say, hey, you want to go up there? And you say, sure, why not? And that's what writing is like. As you're writing, you'll find yourself being pulled off of this story arc into, I wouldn't say a little rabbit hole, but you're being pulled off and you're going a different direction. And then you have to pull yourself back to that story arc again because you need to get back to that clue or whatever it is that has to happen in order for the story to keep going. So yeah. my story is always moving off of the story arc and then coming back, moving off and coming back. So it takes a life of its own. Yeah, uh, yeah. It sounds like you're responsive to the story as it develops, and I think that's a huge key. Some people, if they have detailed outlines, I don't know that they're as nothing wrong with outlines if that's your cup of tea, but I think that sometimes they get too constricted. There's like a straitjacket of preconceptions that, that force them into a corner. Um, and that, um, But it sounds like when you write, you're really like, okay, I'm going to keep my eyes open as I move through this story. I know where I'm heading, but I want it to be an interesting journey along the way. 
Oh, yeah, 100%. When I wrote Delicate Chaos, I thought I would send this guy over to Africa and bring him right back and ended up that, that he stayed in Africa. And then the book went on two different uh, uh, plot lines and hmm. uh, ended up merging in the end. Like, so, yeah. Yeah, nice. You know, uh, has your, does, does your ending ever change during the process of writing? I know you start with the end in mind. Does it ever come to a point where you're like, you know what, I have a different this needs to end in a different way. Well, yeah. Um, really only African ice changed, and it really only changed because as I was writing it, I realized it was going to be a very short book. Oh, I <laughs> so see. Okay. I thought, okay, well, I can actually get to, you know, kind of where the diamonds are or aren't. I'm not going to tell you. Yeah. And, uh, and from there, then something else will happen. So it's kind of like Indiana Jones, and then the second half of it's sort of like Mission Impossible. So I tacked <laughs> that on. But if you didn't hear this and you didn't know that, you would never have any idea. Yeah. But there's a, there's a really interesting one. Um, it's uh, probably going to be out later in 2020, and it's the third series I'm going to release. It's uh, the A.J. Costa series. He's a retired uh, uh, cop down in Phoenix, but he's, uh, he's a little bit of a scallywag, this guy. So uh-huh. you know, it all came to be. I was, I, was in, I was flying into Phoenix, and I left a very expensive coat on the airplane, and I went through security, and I was like 200 feet out of security, and I was like, oh, where's my coat? Yeah. I know I'm not going back, okay? I know I'm not getting it. So uh, I got back to Calgary, and that was about two weeks later. I'm still sitting there. I'm stewing over this. I'm just like, oh, man, I left my coat on the airplane. Darn it. <laughs> and so I, I thought, I'm, I'm going to write a short story. I need to vent. I need to get this out. So I created this AJ character. It's first person, and you get inside his chirpy little brain, and he's always, like, thinking about something, you know, like, great. Uh, and he's using his badge which he should have handed in when he got retired. Uh, you know, he's, he's using it to get into places and do things that he shouldn't do. So he's just always doing this stuff. And he overhears that a woman's left a coat on the airplane. So he uses his badge to go in. He gets the coat off the airplane because she's pretty cute, right? Yeah. And he finds stuff in the pocket. He heads over for the bar. He's having a beer. And he finds this notebook in the pocket of the book uh, and he make a a short story short, uh, <laughs> it leads him to a, uh, a body in the desert. Oh, nice. So, uh, yeah. so he, yeah, he gets his location. He digs up these bones in the desert and uh, turns out that this woman's husband was a, a Silicon Valley CEO who was murdered in Scottsdale two years before. Hmm. So, um, you know, uh, AJ does the first thing that comes to mind, and that's he starts sleeping with her. So I wrote this short story and I handed it to Celia and I said, here, you know, just read this. Right. And she's like, she comes back. She says, oh, Jeff, okay, where did you get this character? She says, this character is like you without borders. you got to write this. So I, I Oh, that's that. fun. You without yeah. borders. <laughs> yeah, me without borders. So I took this story. And um, that, what I just told you is the first four chapters. So he now has found the body, and he's, um, he's sleeping with this woman. I mean, her husband's dead, so <laughs> that's not an issue. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, then it goes on from there. And it's, now, which book was this story. one again? This one's going to be called Size 4. Size 4, okay. Yeah, well, that's her, she's a size 4. That's the size of the coat. Yeah, okay, the coat, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's a size four. He's like, yeah, it figures. 
So, um, so that's the first four chapters of the book, and then it just takes off from there, and there's all kinds of twists and turns, and um, he starts thinking, hey, you know what? She didn't kill her husband, so who did? So he gets in on this, on this, on this cold case. It's two years yeah. old, and away they go. That sounds, sounds very fascinating, and I like how you used your personal tragedy to lead you into, <laughs> into a story now. Yeah, first world tragedy left me. Yeah, first world tragedy. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so tell us about what's, what, what you have available right now, or do you have any new projects that are just coming out? I want to encourage people to go check out your books, and uh, where, should they, where should they start, or what's, what's, on the, what's on the burner right now? Well, I've got uh, I've got some crime stuff out. Uh, so it's uh, one is evil. Uh, it's out of uh, Bobby Greco's series, and it's based in Orlando. Um, uh, Bobby's uh, uh, Bobby's an interesting guy. Like I, I took a lot of uh, direction from from a homicide cop here, Brian Robinson. Robertson is his name, and. Uh, uh, to craft these, this, all of these different characters that populate these series, but the uh, the first series out is uh, is the Bobby Greco series, and it's out on Amazon right now. There's a prequel out. You can go to my website at jeffbuick.com and uh, and get a free the free prequel, and then okay. you can jump in and and get uh, One Is Evil. Uh, following that is going to be. Um, a Killing Game, which is Curtis Westcott and Aislinn Byrne. And that's uh, Curtis Westcott is the chief of homicide in Boston. Uh, Aislinn is his just right-hand uh, go-to person for, uh, as a detective, she's she's uh, top-notch. And uh, then right after that will be the A.J. Costa series. Now that's set in Phoenix. Um, and then there's some standalone ones. I've got uh, the Krubera conspiracy. That's where a couple of uh, guys from kind of the Baltimore, Washington, D.C. area, they head over to uh, Abkhazia to go down the deepest cave in the world, which is Krubera. Mm. And uh, one of the brothers is a lawyer with the CIA, and he gets pulled off to the side, and, and he has to stay above ground and figure out who's monkeying with the Abkhazian election. And his brother goes down the cave, so his brother's running into all kinds of problems um, uh, down the cave, and uh, and uh, Damon's running into all kinds of problems, uh, you know, trying to source out sure. what's going on and who's behind this. So you know, there's just all kinds of standalones. I mean, I, I could probably go on for you know, yeah. an, another hour just on what I've got coming out. There's tons of stuff. Uh, best thing to do is just go to my website and sign up for the newsletter, and then you'll 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 be in the loop. Okay, that sounds good. Yeah, and it's jeffbuick.com is the website. Mm-hmm. And so that's the best place for people to go to get um, brief descriptions of the books, maybe, and figure out which one they want to check out next. Right. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. Now, um, you mentioned quite a number of different series that you have going on. Um, do you find it difficult to keep track of the characters, maybe their pace and the voice of the different books as you're, as you're moving forward with different series? No, no, not at all. Uh, when you're, at least when I'm writing a series, I'm, I'm writing one book at a time. So uh-huh. I just completely get into that character, and the other characters are just, they're gone, they're somewhere else. So I'm not AJ if I'm writing Bobby, I'm Bobby. And yeah. uh, I'm not Bobby if I'm writing Curtis Westcott, you know. So the, And they've all got their little idiosyncrasy. They're all very different. Um, one thing that I've been really, really cognizant of uh, when I'm doing rewrites on some of my older stuff or on my new stuff 
is to make sure that I, as, as I said before, make sure I get out of my little Jeff Buick box uh, with a with a really healthy uh, POV for other characters, like for example, Aislinn Byrne. Uh, Aislinn is a she's a Irish cop who came up from the streets on Boston, and she'd be mid thirties, you know, maybe thirty five to thirty seven years old. Um, uh, very capable, and uh, her dad was a cop. Uh, and when I initially wrote the book, that character was a guy. So I went back mm. and I completely rewrote that and put her into yeah. it because. Because women are extremely um, uh, important uh, as characters in, in books and in life, and you, yeah. you know, as a guy, sometimes it's easier to kind of make you know the good guy a guy. Whereas, in fact, hey, you know what? Half our population of the world is women. Don't forget about <laughs> it. So I'm really cautious yeah. into that these days as well, too, making sure that you know women are in there and in really good roles. Now, do you find it more difficult to write um, from a woman's point of view, or is it for you it's just, you know, another character, and you're just going to climb into that character's skin and try to write what's honest? Well, I I mean, I talk to women all the time and try to get an idea of what's important to them, Uh and it's a little bit different from what's important to guys a lot of times. Guys are really driven a lot of times by ego. Women are really driven by emotion in a lot of Hmm. cases, and uh, if you take that underlying uh, difference kind of as a baseline and and then say, okay, well, you know, what's important to women uh, as compared to what's important to men? And then uh, if you can understand that, then I think you can write their characters better. That's great. Climbing, climbing in, being honest and genuine with the, with the stories. Well, Jeff, I really appreciate your time today. This is, um, this is a great conversation and I feel like you've given, you know, lots of practical um, insights to people who might be writers or people who might be interested in uh, in some of your books. Oh, I, I hope so. I hope I hope this has maybe helped somebody. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, we appreciate it. And um, for all of our listeners, please do go to jeffbuick.com, check out his books, and you can order them either through the website or through an online bookseller. Um, also, my books are at stephenjames.net. You can check out my newest one, Synapse, which is now available. And for more information about our other guests and to check out our other broadcasts, click to thestoryblender.com, where you can um, listen to the podcast wherever you are. And folks, always remember... The art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time.